right, so now I have the pleasure of introducing today's speaker, uh, which is Amelia, uh, who is our director of River Kids. Um, so let's give Amelia a round of applause. Thank you, Allison. Hi, my name is Amelia, and as Allison said, I'm uh, the director of the children's program here at the River. Welcome. I'm so glad that you are here today. So, as usual, I have some questions to ask. That's kind of my thing, right? Um, what do you do with broken things? Are you the kind of person who are quick to replace things, or do you like to repair things? Maybe like this? Or this other picture? <laughs> okay, don't do this because at some points it gets dangerous and despite what you think, duct tape doesn't fix everything. So what do you decide what's valuable to you? What makes something worthy? What makes our lives worthy? Last week, Pastor Charles talked about, kick us off with a new sermon series called Life of Worth. So we have been talking about how in our contemporary American culture, we often define life of worth as having all these things that we want, uh, such as wealth, status, good education, good looks, good health, a happy family, a wide network of friends and connection. A good life is a life that is full of achievements and attainments of many kinds. And religious people or people at church often think about life in a similar way. The Christian life is about doing good, doing the right and moral things, generosity, charity, humility, all wonderful things. And I encourage all of us to do these. But doing good, being good, and being thought of as good is a kind of achievement and attainment too. I remember talking to my mom when Pastor Charles first asked me to preach for the first time. My mom asked, does he know that you're divorced? I said, yes. Um, you see, I don't think my mom was being critical or being mean. Her question was very valid. How do you talk about life when you don't seem to have it all together? Or maybe consult people when you have lack and failures. Haven't we all heard this verse? Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. To be completely honest, I don't feel competent a lot of times. Standing here, for example, I took a couple of theological courses, but my education was largely in architecture and design, not exactly relevant to church sermons. And besides working as the children's program director, I'm actually studying part-time too for marriage and family therapy. So although I am learning a lot about children's development, about relationships, about family system. It still does not change the fact that 
my marriage ended. Again, it can be quite puzzling. And if you ask my children, they would be happy to tell you how mean of a mother I could be, especially about taking more frequent showers or eat, not eating a whole bag of candies in one day. In the past, I have also spoken a few times about having been born as a minority in Indonesia and how this made me feel out of place, a sense of unbelonging. Even after I moved away and live in Singapore and the United Kingdom, I continued to feel like the odd one out in the room. It's not until I settled here in New York for some years that I finally realized that everyone is their own kind of weird too. I look around my subway car and it looks like about half of the people probably came from elsewhere, probably mispronounce words like I do, and speak with accents too. Actually, to think about it, I may actually belong here. What I'm saying is, it's hard to see our worth and the worth of our life if we do not feel like we're measuring up to the standards, either societal, cultural, or the ones that we created for ourselves. And it gets even harder if instead of having all that happy, shiny stuff in the beginning, we have a long list of broken pieces, like a divorce, a loss of job, a failed business, a bankruptcy, a rejection from a school, passed over for a promotion, illness, disability, family conflicts, estrangement, breakups, death of a loved ones, and many, many more. We know that we are worthy in God's eyes. We talk about it a lot. Agape or unconditional love tells us so. But when the lack and the brokenness in our lives feel so big, and we feel like we're living in the shadows for a lot of times, how can this be good? I heard that I am loved by God, but what does this love do? I know that God finds me worthy, but how can I see and live it for myself? The goal is for all of us, I assume, is to live a good life not to keep questioning about it. There's a quote from Francis of Assisi. We must bear patiently not being good and not being thought good. Yes, you heard it right, so I'm going to repeat that again. We must bear patiently not being good and not being thought good. For centuries, this quote was considered incorrect to the point that the word not was deleted from the text because no one believed that Francis of Assisi would write such a thing. Our religious and righteous instinct probably would do the same because being good or seen as good appeals to our ego. 
When God told the prophet Samuel to go to the house of Jesse to anoint the king, the next king of Israel, God did not take the root of conventional wisdom. God did not look for good. When they had come, Samuel looked at Eliab, Jesse's first son, and thought, For sure he is the Lord's chosen one who is standing before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at the way he looks on the outside, or how tall he is, because I have not chosen him. For the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. A man looks at the outside of a person, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are these all your children? Are, are, are these all the children? And Jesse said, There's yet the youngest one. See, he is taking care of the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send for him. We will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent for him and brought him in. And this boy was David, as in King David of Israel. Now, if someone important is coming over to my house to pick one of my children to be the next king or leader, I'm going to make sure that all my children are here. Well, in fact, I may take my nieces and nephews too just to increase the chance, right? <laughs> so isn't it interesting that David was not included here? In fact, Samuel had to prompt Jesse to even admit there was another child. There are a few theories. Many of you may have noticed that the birth order was very important during biblical times. This is because the firstborn got a double portion of the inheritance. So if you have two children, the first child will get two-thirds of the inheritance and the second child will get one-third. Now, I'm not sure if inheritance got cut half every time you go down the birth order, but you can imagine being son number eight. It's like having a really, really short end of the stick. A very unfortunate position. On top of that, it looks like Jesse already made a decision that this boy was only fit to be a shepherd. So he did not even bother to give David a chance. The book of Jeremiah documented that shepherds were deprived of all civil rights. They could not fulfill judicial offices or even be admitted as witnesses in court. Shepherds were second-class citizens dispensable and not considered trustworthy. A very unlikely candidate for a king. And we could see how David himself also experienced moments of unworthiness. Even from the very beginning, he said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin 
my mother conceived me. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's son. Actually, if you read the entire Psalm 69, you could see the kind of misery that David had to endure growing up. David's childhood was full of loneliness and rejection. He speaks about crying for hours because of this. He explains how he was being punished for a sin he did not commit and being the object of mockery. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of the drunkards. There were theories that David could have been an illegitimate child, a child born out of adultery. One interpretation is that Jesse had divorced his wife and then reconnected, which was forbidden under the law. Another theory was David's mother could be a prostitute. But whatever it was, David carried a lot of shame and shadows in his life. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shame. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I look for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. That put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. I wasn't so sure what gall is, so I looked it up. Galls are a kind of abnormal growth on plants or benign tumors in animals, bitter tasting substances. And when you put this in someone's food, either as a painkiller or if you really hate them. Even after David was anointed, David continued to be overlooked, dismissed, and excluded. One morning, David was sent by his father to bring lunch for his brothers who were in the battle camp. Goliath was a Philistine soldier, the enemy of the Israelites. And according to the Bible, he was a giant. It was said that whenever Goliath appeared, the Israelites ran away. But David decided to go over to Saul, who was at this time was still the official king of Israel, and said, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will rescue me 
from the hand of this Philistine. A drastic change of tone, right? From someone who seemed very depressed, an object of mockery, unworthy among others, to someone who now sounds very confident, courageous, and favored by God. See, David's life did not change instantly from a shepherd boy to a king, despite the anointing. There was a lot of process. At some point, David realized that all those lonely times in the field, surrounded by predators, having to fight lions and bears with his bare hands, was preparing him for this moment. The dark times, the emptiness, and the brokenness that David experienced made room for God. And this integration between the shadows and the light, between David's humanity and God's unconditional love, is powerful and transformative. It gave David a sense of wholeness and confidence to go to Saul and eventually win the battle for his country. Like the famous saying, it's through the cracks that light can shine. You see, I believe we have sorely misunderstood our verse earlier. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Greek word for perfect here is teleus, which actually means brought to its end, mature, completed, or whole. This means we were never expected to pursue perfection or pure goodness without blemishes or flaws, but rather we are to be completed, to be made whole in God. Remember the broken chair I showed earlier? Well, I picked that up from the street many, 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 many years ago while I was still attending the design school. I was working on a project called The Good Life. We were asked questions. What makes a good life? How would you design a product for a good life? And different students answered this question by addressing the various issues we have in the world. One student designed a farmer's hat with solar panels on it. Another designed a transformative, sustainable piece of clothing. I was particularly um, concerned with a local issue, the abundance of furniture waste on the streets of New York City. Fast furniture, which is mass-produced and relatively inexpensive, tends to break down easily or get discarded prematurely. So if the cost of removal or transformation is greater than the price tag, or the hassle of donating or reselling is bigger than just dumping it on the curb, that's what would happen to this furniture. 
So I collected several broken and discarded pieces from the streets and took them to the wood shop. I looked at them, I cleaned them, and I worked on them. I also cut some new pieces out of new material. I was designing a system, a kind of training and recycling center for those who have been incarcerated, where broken and discarded furniture can be categorized, clean, and combined with a set of prosthetics to, to create a complete piece, a whole new shape of furniture that is not only unique, but tells the story. And stories bring worth and values. As the trainees examine the broken pieces, cleaning them, sending them, they may reflect on the parts of their lives that they may find unworthy, lacking, maybe shameful. As they learn new skills and use the modern tools, they open themselves up to progress and growth. The hope is, at the end of the training, we do not only have new, unique pieces of furniture that are ready to be cherished again, but we become transformed, more complete, and more whole. And it is this Good Life Project that inspired my message today and gives two practical suggestions. Number one, acknowledge our shadow and re-examine our story. Pay attention to the broken parts of our lives and the things that trigger us. Reflect on the things that we deny we feel ashamed of and fear, and then see if there are new stories that can be told. Oftentimes, in the pursuit of goodness and happiness, we feel like we must be rid of them quickly, but actually it is this brokenness that opened me up to who I truly am and allow me to reconstruct a new story about myself and my life. One thing that we often talked about at the River Kids is how imagination is a gift from God. It is through imagination that David was able to re-narrate his story from someone who was discarded and despised by many to someone who was cared for by God. With imagination, David visualized agape a God who was always with him, even in the wilderness, a God who protected him as he fought with the lions and the bears. A living God, David said. Number two, practice our worthiness. Notice when you were looking for a parking space and all of a sudden, a car pulled out giving you the space that you need just at the right time. Coincidence? Maybe. But notice this anyway. Notice when you open the window and a nice breeze fills the room. Feel how nice it is, 
how perfect it is to be alive in that moment. Ordinary? Sure. Practice this anyway. Over time, you will question yourself less and less. Over time, the good life becomes second nature. I agree to preach, or rather speak, not because I feel competent, but because I feel comfortable knowing that I can be truly human and God can be God. God's light fills in the cracks and the gaps that I have within myself and in my life. Feeling the warmth of God's life, light Experiencing the unconditional acceptance is what makes my life worthy. And God's love and light flows through you too. And your grace and openness makes this whole process even more wholesome and satisfying. It is the integration between the shadows and the light a complete story of God's love and redemption. A life worth living. So let me close with a blessing for you today. Be complete. Therefore, as our God completes you. Amen. Thank you, as always, Amelia.